Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Harold Hongju Ko, is one of America's leading scholars of international law. He's the Sterling Professor of International Law at Yale Law School, where he formerly served as the dean. He also served as the legal advisor in the State Department and was the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Professor Ko is the author of a new book that examines the Trump administration's relationship with international law. His book is called, straightforwardly, The Trump Administration and International Law. It surveys issues in which the Trump administration has clashed with international law, including immigration and refugees, human rights, climate change, and other areas. And Professor Co. concludes that forces of international law are, in fact, far more resilient than we might expect. Trump's power, to a large degree, has been constrained by international law. In our conversation, Harold Hongju Ko explains the process through which international law has so far been able to blunt some of Trump's more aggressive impulses. I'll post the link to the book on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I, I'm grateful uh, for the fact that it gave me the excuse to reach out to Professor Harold Hongju Ko and ask him for an interview. As I said, he is uh, one of the leading scholars in the world of international law and has served in various top positions in the U.S. government. And our conversation, I think, is a really useful reminder that international law is not some amorphous, intangible thing, but rather it is influencing politics and policies here in the United States and is stronger than we might expect. So here is my conversation with Professor Harold Hongju Ko. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, the book began the day after the November 2016 election. Um, I came back to Yale Law School where I teach, and a student came up to me very upset and said, um, I want Donald Trump to lose, but I want America and the world to win. Is that possible? And I said, yes, because international law and law itself are much bigger than Donald Trump. And he seemed surprised by that answer. Um, most recently, after the book was published, a well-known judge asked me, what's the thesis of the book? And I said, he's not winning. And again, this judge seemed surprised. So I think it's the surprise element that, that made me want to um, say more about this in various forums. Um, I think that um, 
the flurry of activity that we see from Trump is really part of his broader strategy. Um, he floods the zone with initiatives. And so you forget about the last one because uh, two more outrageous things have happened. And it creates the impression of a huge amount of activity and destructive activity. And it's certainly, uh, you know, uh, disruptive. The real question is how much staying power is it really having? And so I thought I would try to analyze that. And then <clears throat> to what extent is the resistance to Trump actually uh, settling in on a counter strategy to his strategy? And what I conclude in the book is that um, for every action, there's an opposite reaction that by and large, if you look across a spectrum of issues, immigration, climate change, denuclearization, warfare, um, which are all part of the American foreign policy landscape, Trump is having a lot less impact than people believe. So the image that I try to use is of that of um, Muhammad Ali's famous fight with George Foreman. You know, Foreman was hitting him. Uh, people thought Ali was losing. He was covering up and counterpunching. And then when Foreman exhausted himself, um, Ali came off the ropes and knocked him out. But in the seventh round, if you had asked somebody who's winning, they would have said Foreman. In fact, uh, Ali was about to prevail. Well, of course, Muhammad Ali died horribly of Parkinson's from uh, sustaining all those blows while George Foreman, you know, went on to become an entrepreneur selling, you know, electric grills that were quite well, successful. That, that's the other that's the other half of this, which is um, there's only so much punishment you can take and uh, the system may start to become unglued. And so, um, you know, two years is one thing, four years is another thing, eight years is another thing. And um, so, uh, you know, that's uh, one of the reasons why the uh, November 2018 election will be so important in terms of determining uh, where exactly the long-term damage um, sits. And, and I should say, we're speaking the day before the election. This episode will be yeah. published uh, by the time the midterm results are, are known. Um, but but could you sort of walk me through an example in which, um, in one way or another, the Trump administration is trying to upend or um, you know, confront international law in, in a specific way and how sort of the, the resistance, as you said, is reacting to that affront? Sure. I'll give you two quick examples. One is, you know, the family separation policy. Um, you know, the Trump decided that he would go tough on immigrants. His real strategy is to shock and awe and encourage self-deportation. Um, his claim was that anybody crossing the border without papers is um, a criminal, uh, even though they might be seeking asylum, in which case they have a legal right to do so. Um, and you know, they started arresting people. Uh, but it turned out that there are two uh, courts who are supervising this. There is um, one court in San Diego which continued to issue rulings against. Another one had a standing rule that you couldn't separate parents with their children for more than 20 days. Uh, after both sides ended up uh, essentially ordering the government to return to the rule of law, Trump has essentially reverted to the same policy again with enormous heartbreak for individuals who he's uh, harmed, 
but the actual policy position is not that much different than it was before. So, so in other words, like our, our legal institutions were able to like with like withstand that, that sort of assault on sort of norms and, and the legal process. Yeah. You know, another example is his most recent statements, which is he's going to change birthright citizenship by executive order. You know, it's in the constitution. You know, if you're born here, you're a citizen. He can't change that by executive order. So he can make a lot of noise, uh, see in court and, um, um, you know, this requires a constitutional amendment. Everybody agrees on this. I think a more graphic example is North Korea. Um, you know, with great fanfare, they said, we're going to get rid of the policy of North Korea, which is what they called strategic patience. He first threatens people with, you know, nuclear attack and starting, a, uh, uh, you know, he said he was going to end North Korea, which is a country of 25 million people. I, I'm Korean American, so I have relatives there. I don't take this lightly. So what ended up happening, he's desperate for a summit. Um, the North Koreans play him like a fiddle. Um, you know, they uh, extract many concessions from him. He gets absolutely nothing from them. Uh, most recently at the UN General Assembly, he's wandering around looking for Kim Jong-un and saying, uh, where is he? I love him. I love him. Um, so he's gone from being rocket man to someone he loves. The policy is essentially where it was. And now they're trying to get a deal again. And the great irony is the deal they're trying to get looks like the Iran nuclear deal, which he said he's going to walk away from. So exactly the kind of deal that he would actually want with North Korea is exactly the one that he says he wants to break with Iran. It's another example of a lot of churning and um, n- no real change. So on the immigration example, though, I, I wonder if if um, it's possible to push back your against your argument that he has not been successful, just given that the the aversion, I should say, of the travel ban was upheld last year, preventing uh, you know citizens of of several different countries from you know even entering the United States. Well, uh, you're assuming that the litigation is over. It's not over. For, first of all, it um, it took three years. I'm sorry, two, two years to get it to the court. All they said is that they would not hold a preliminary injunction. I'm sorry to get technical here, but now, right. now they're now they're in the um, discovery phase, and um, so it's not unconstitutional on its face. The question is, is it unconstitutional as applied? And um, you know, all of these. Um, pieces of evidence are being put in on that issue. Meanwhile, in Europe, um, you can't come to the United States from one of the countries that's subject to the ban unless you transit a European country. They they have to obey the European Convention on Human Rights and the European human rights laws, and they could well decide that it's illegal for them to support this activity. And then if uh, on election day tomorrow, uh, one or both houses flips to uh, the Democrats, they can start to undo the travel ban by uh, by legislation, or at least the House can do so and force the Senate to react. So, you know, the, the fact that um, he got five justices 
very narrowly to uphold his position doesn't mean he's going to carry the day over the longer term. So, so does that suggest, or are you suggesting that our institutions uh, of, of law, our justice institutions, are sort of far more resilient um, than sort of we might expect superficially? Yeah, I'd, I'd call them resistant and resilient. Resistance triggers their resilience. And um, right, right now, I think they're keeping Trump within the guardrails. Um, you know, he wants to do these things. He makes a big fuss out of it. It makes it very difficult. And then um, he basically uh, reverts back to where he was with having only damaged our reputation in the process. You know, take the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, Trump said he wants to withdraw. Uh, all he's done is announce that he will file a notice in November 2019. That would, under law, then take a year to become effective, which is November 4th, 2020. That's the day after the next presidential election. Uh, until then, we're still in. Um, and um, uh, that would be like my telling my boss I'm going to leave in a year. You know, it has no legal effect. So there's a lot of reaction to it. And uh, maybe Trump might conclude people think I withdrawn, so um, that's all I need to do for now. Um, you know, I got credit with my base, and so you know, let me let me uh, move on to an issue that might actually get me reelected. And uh, what ends up happening is that we have this phenomenon I describe in the book, which I call resigning without leaving. We we um, make ourselves lame ducks in existing institutions, and then. Uh, we're powerless because we've disempowered ourselves. Same goes for the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and um, then nobody listens to us anymore. And um, Isn't though, the, the, on, on the Iran nuclear deal, though, isn't that like a good example, though, of the U.S. sort of violating, transparently violating international law? That's the Security Council resolution that, you know, the U.S. voted for and, and all, you know, 15 members of the Security Council unanimously uh, voted for enshrining the, the JCPOA that now the United States is just sort of walking away from without any you know, with without any consequence to the United States. I mean, again, we're we're speaking on a day in which the U.S. is reimposing sanctions on a number of entities that do business with Iran. Those sanctions that have been lifted as a condition of the the Iran nuclear deal. Yet there's no like there's no consequence to the United States for any of this happening. Well, there's no consequence of it happening. You could argue, you know, the Iran has actually sued the United States at the International Court of Justice for the international law claims you mentioned. But but you have to remember that the thing that led to the deal in the first place was uh, a lot of countries agreeing collectively to act against Iran. Now they're all acting against Trump, um, and the United States may want to do what it's doing unilaterally. What you saw with Cuba is how ineffective unilateral sanctions are. You know, the money that was frozen has been released, and all the leverage was lost at the front end. And the Trump administration itself didn't invoke the snapback provisions. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're still in the Iran nuclear deal. So, um, again, you know, the how, wait, how, how how is that? How is the U.S. still in in the deal if it's sort of effectively violating it? Um, you can be in a marriage and be committing adultery. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, I mean, I, I'm for, unfortunately, that that the reality is that you can say, 
I'm leaving, but you can actually still be in and underperforming or violating the basic premises. Now, what it means as a matter of international law is that if somebody else comes in, you'll be in arrears, but they can make it up. For years, the United States didn't pay its UN dues, then they came in under under Clinton and they paid them. Mm-hmm. So um, that means that Trump's uh, errors and withdrawals are correctable. And again, I, I think what's happening in this conversation is il- illustrating it, is yeah. people take superficial actions by Trump and thinks to, think that they have had conclusive legal effect. In fact, they've had, you know, sort of surface effects. Um, and if, in fact, all Trump cares about is his base thinking he's done something, then he may just leave it at that because he's not a person of sustained policy interest uh, who's capable of implementing things across the board. I mean, just look at the tally across the board right now. You know, 60 plus executive orders, almost no impact. Almost no legislation passed, except for a tax cut, which is highly unpopular. Um, His major achievement is two Supreme Court justices, but we have a lot of lower court judges who will see whether or not they're going to be supervised by these litigations going on in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere about U.S. actions. Um, well, we're still it, it, in well, Paris. yeah. Oh, well, I would say also another perhaps achievement in in sort of scare quotes is dramatically reducing the refugee resettlement cap, you know, from from what it was before, and that was able to be done by executive order without much sort of pushback. It seems. Well, and that somebody else can come and dial it back up the other way. I mean, yeah, you know, the, the, you know I mean, I, I just think um, um, things that he can do that another president can undo, mm-hmm. um, you know. That's what happens. It's a little bit more dramatic. But but the idea that these are long-term structural changes as opposed to, um, you know, I, I, the real question you ought to be asking is, how much is this reducing people coming to the United States? You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that, the, the if, if anything, the influx is where it was before. And right now he's, he's jacking up for the purpose of, you know, um, igniting his base for the election. Um, so, you know, just every few hours threatening something or saying something which is illegal uh, and can't be effectuated or which is reversible, that's not lasting change. So so can we maybe then like eschew the, the, the superficial and get like a little weeds, weedy and, and, and technical? Um, so... You argue that it is through a theory that you're largely credited that you, that you came up with a transnational legal process uh, that um, these sort of institutions, these mechanisms of international law, are, are far more resilient than uh, we may expect uh, superficially. Can, can you uh, I, explain um, to to the uninitiated what you mean by the transnational legal process, and also describe sort of how that pushback works and and, and looks like? Well, maybe the best way to illustrate it is to describe why Brexit is such a disaster. Um, okay. You know, the international and the domestic become deeply intertwined. And um, um, Trump's greatest mistake, um, intellectual mistake, is he thinks everything is a deal. Um, life is not deals, it's relationships. So, you know, the UK becomes deeply interconnected with Europe. And they change everything they do to adjust to that. So in the port of Dover, they they only have one day of food on hand. Everything else is coming over from uh, the continent. 
or you know the um, in in London the 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 uh, restaurant Prêt à Manger, the grab yeah. and go place. They're everywhere. Eighty eighty percent of those employees are from the continent. Uh, you know Oxford and Cambridge universities. Thirty to forty percent of their students are from the continent. You know from Dublin to um, uh, Belfast, there's one electric grid. Uh, and, you know, if you drive there, it feels like one country. And the Good Friday Accords, which is keeping the peace, turns on continued membership in the EU. Now, you know, um, the whole point is that these habits, uh, legal these legal patterns of international law are actually deeply embedded into our domestic law. They're internalized, and you know you just can't rip them out. You know, it'd be like my trying to rip all of the red threads out of a tapestry, and saying that the tapestry looks the same way that it did before. And um, that is the, you know, the the small mindedness of his approach. I mean, for example, he views the entire world as bilateral trade deficits. When the telephone that I'm talking to you on was made in many different countries and was probably assembled in one country. So what's the point of actually thinking of that in terms of um, a bilateral trade deficit? Um, the fact of the matter is that our, our economies are integrated. Global, the, the economy is global. The financial system is global. The communication system is global. Culture is global. Cuisine is global. Law is global. That, that's the whole point. And um, the idea that you can come in and sort of try to uh, recreate a fortress America um, is, is just ignoring the reality of what's, what, what we're looking at. And I suppose that's probably why, you know, these midterm elections are, are so consequential is that, you know, for, for example, you know, Trump has, there are rumors and, and, you know, I saw a press release by, say, Human Rights Watch before we, we talked that the U.S., that Trump may be readying like an executive order to undo uh, the asylum process in the United States, which is, you know, presumably governed by a law written by Congress, right? It's not something that he could just overturn or, or um, revoke with, with executive order. Um, so I guess like, what should we be watching out for in terms of, um, progress that say the Trump administration might be making towards eroding, um, some, some of those legal standards and some of those sort of institutions of, of, of law, like how, what, when will we know that, um, those institutions aren't as resilient or perhaps the resistance isn't as strong as, as we might have guessed? Uh, well, first of all, I think the, the basic message is that the resistance needs to keep replenishing itself and fighting. Um, you know, a lot of people were kind of discouraged after the Kavanaugh confirmation that it's pointless. You know, so obviously, you know, if, if one side gives up and the other side keeps pushing ahead, they prevail. Um, the second thing is some people think this system is self-correcting. That That's clearly not true. You know, if if... You tell someone they have cancer and they say, well, I survive. The answer is, it depends on how far everyone fights. You know, the medications are there, the science is there, but, you know, everybody has to fight um, to see how resilient the human body is. And the same goes for our body politic. Now, I think um, um, part of the way that we know that we're losing is when the uh, bureaucracy starts being depleted of all of its key figures. Um, you know, I worked in the government for 10 years. 
young people aren't coming who don't want to work for Trump. So in their first five years, uh, zero to five, people are toward the end of their careers are retiring early because they don't want to work for Trump. But the core group is staying in. You know, they're, if you have 20 years in and you think Trump is going to be gone, you don't leave and give up your career. You try to resist. And, you know, that's what we saw with things like the anonymous op-ed writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think after, you know, they'll probably last four years if Trump is reelected, then um, they probably won't last eight years because they just, you know, who wants to be associated with eliminating birthright citizenship, you know, particularly if you yourself were born to an immigrant family. And as you know, um, my students ask me things like, should I go work for the government now? To which my answer is, would you go to Florida in a hurricane? (laughs) You know, it's great. great to work. It's great to work for the government. But why do you go in the most inhospitable environment? Um, You know, you have a person who doesn't believe in law. Um, who's contemptuous of human rights and doesn't even understand the basics of democracy. So why should we be, uh, you know, in the government, you can only be as good as the leader of the government. So that that's what makes it a um, challenging time. But I think the signs are actually the opposite. You know, um, um, I, I've read a book called The Secret Life of Trees. I don't know if you've seen yeah. it, but you know, the, these trees suffer astonishing uh, attacks and insults, and they managed to reroute and somehow survive. That That's shared resilience. That's, that's what we're talking about here. The institutions that exist are much more indicative of the enduring strength of our democracy than Trump's tweets, and I think that they will survive and re-knit our society long after he's gone. Well, well, Professor, let's let's leave it there on a, on a hopeful note. Then, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks very much, Mark. I, I, I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Professor Harold Hongju Ko. That was great. I've, I've always wanted to to chat with him, and in, in fact, we talked a little bit after the recording stopped. And I suspect he'll be back on uh, the show to talk more sometime soon. And I'm thrilled for that. As always, a big thank you to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being a content partner with the show. Expect a new episode from them soon. And you, too, can be a supporter of the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you go to the globaldispatchespodcast.com homepage, click on support the show, you can open up a platform where you can make an ongoing contribution to the show. And in return... You get all sorts of goodies from me and in bonus episodes, a complimentary subscription to my daily mornings news clips service that goes to all sorts of global development and global affairs insiders around the world. It can be yours. Uh, Just please become a premium subscriber, support the show, get great rewards. It's all there. I will see you next time. Bye.